This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card. One of the great pleasures in life is traveling, especially when there's great food waiting at your destination. When months of planning, preparation, and exploration all culminate into one perfect bite, there's nothing better. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, and welcome to Gastropod. The podcast where we look at food through the lens of science and history. I'm Nicola Twilley. And I'm Cynthia Graber. And we are your intrepid hosts. This week, we're doing something a little different. We're spending the entire episode with just one person. To get a delicious carrot on your plate is to, is to support the right kind of soil. That was Dan Barber. He's a chef. And not just any chef. The James Beard Foundation named him the top chef in America in 2009. And that same year, Time magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. And those accolades haven't left him sitting pretty, lazily enjoying all the attention coming his way. Far from it. He just came out with a new book. It's called The Third Plate. And we read it. And we could not stop talking about it. Right, because it's packed with really interesting and inspiring ideas. And it's also pretty thought-provoking and even controversial in places. So we decided we had to talk with him. And when you're done listening to this episode, you'll probably be itching to read it for yourself. Fortunately, we have a signed copy to give away to one lucky listener. We'll let you know more about that later on. Also, just in case you are wondering where all that science and history we promised you is gone, don't panic. We've got you covered. Even though we're only talking to one person this week, our conversation breaks the idea of the third plate into three. How convenient. Yes, exactly. First, we talk about the historical connection between ecosystem and cuisine and examples of where that works and where it is broken down. And then we get into the science and the relationship between soil health and nutrient density. And then we end up with a look at the future of plant breeding for maximum flavor. So let's get started. Um, that wasn't Dan Barber. Right. Yes. Uh, those were turkeys. Jeff Mayno, who is my husband, grabbed that on his iPhone while we were chatting with Dan Barber. We didn't even ask him to. I think he's got a bright future as a radio producer. I knew I married him for a reason. His iPhone recording skills, how sweet. Anyway, Jeff got close to turkeys because Blue Hill at Stone Barns, that's Dan Barber's restaurant, it's surrounded by a farm. There are fields and greenhouses and beehives and chicken coops and, of course, turkeys. And they're all part of Stone Barn's Center for Food and Agriculture. They grow a lot of the food that Dan serves at the restaurant. It goes way beyond farm to table. It's more like tables in a farm. It's interesting that you mentioned that, Cynthia, because going beyond farm to table is one of the central themes of the book. And hold that thought. We will be coming back to that. Hello. I'm Hello. so sorry. Hi. Hi. I'm embarrassed. 
We're no, early. we're early. It's oh, fine. Okay, how are you? Nice Here's Dan when we were first setting up and chatting. Dan was kind enough to be with us before we'd released even one episode. Even before we had a name for our baby podcast. I hear you're, you're launching a very exciting what podcast thing. I don't know. What, what <laughs> if we're going to use that as our tagline. <laughs> a very exciting podcast thing. Yeah. That's right. Star chef Dan Barber thinks our podcast is, quote, very exciting. It's our first celebrity endorsement. So exciting. Anyway, we're sitting there in Blue Hill looking out on this completely gorgeous landscape. But a lot of the book takes place in another equally stunning landscape, but in Spain. The Dehesa is a, is a man-made uh, savanna in southwestern Spain that uh, is 2,000 years old and about the size of Massachusetts. It's an enormous area that has become famous for its rightfully famous culinary product. The famous, I say famous a couple of times here because you can't exaggerate the jamón imbarico pigs uh, and the jamón imbarico ham that is produced from this ecosystem. This is actually 100% true. If you have not yet tasted this jamón imbarico and you're not a vegetarian or keeping kosher, of course, then you need to run, not walk to your nearest deli, grocery store, or even Costco. You will experience what I can honestly only really describe as a taste orgasm. (laughs) And the taste is, in fact, out of this world. And the price is, too, of course. But it wasn't actually this super ham that brought Dan to the Spanish Dehesa. I actually went to Dehesa because I was in search of this natural fattening of a goose liver. So I came at this from through many, many uh, doors here, but I I ended up realizing the extent of the agriculture ecosystem included cork production and included vegetable production and included grain production and with its intense forestry uh, included wild products and and mushrooms and, and then there was a whole cork industry which actually supplies most of the cork that we find in wine bottles in the world. What I discovered through these visits to the Dehesa and getting to know its history and its agriculture products is that the brilliance and health of the system was really about how you could not covet or support particular products. And that, when I say could not, I mean the culture and the cuisine, which is really what came out of this, this research, is the cuisine dictated a kind of pattern of eating. If you take that further, it kind of dictated the culture and who you were to be a Spaniard from the Extremadura region of, of Spain, which is where the Dehesa is located. And, and by that, I mean that, that the traditions and the patterns of eating the cuisine that, that has developed over these thousands of years is there to support the landscape. And to support the landscape means diversifying and supporting all the products of the Dehesa. So while ham is, a, is an incredibly important part of the, the harvesting from this area, and I would argue one of the more delicious parts of the harvesting, it is not the only product. And the cuisine of Extremadura forces you to enjoy and, and support the entirety of the landscape. And that's part of the reason that we're still talking about the Dehesa as an ecological model, and we're still talking about and pointing to a cuisine of Extremadura. I mean, 
that is the true definition of sustainability, is that it's lasted for thousands of years. And so what this kind of system does not allow you to do is to do the kind of thing that I did for many, many, many years as a chef, which is decide which products at my local farmer's market that I want to cook with. So just to reiterate, he is saying that the locals can't be like, wow, we have the most delicious ham in the world. Even though, to be completely fair, they do. Sure, but historically they haven't been able to say, hey, we'll eat that ham every day and, uh, you know, maybe we'll get everything else we want from the folks on the coast. They've had to eat from the entire ecosystem because you need that whole ecosystem to work to get the ham in the first place. Okay, so, Nikki, remember how I told you to hold that thought about going beyond farm-to-table? Well, here is where one of the premier farm-to-table chefs in the country, maybe even in the world, he literally has tables in the middle of a farm. He now tells us that farm-to-table is actually not all it's cracked up to be. I want to be careful to not get negative about the farm-to-table movement. It's been a very important movement, and it's raised a lot of consciousness and, and, and certainly started a conversation between chefs and, and farmers and been very educational. But, but the problem is when you engage in this connection with farmers at farmers' markets or through CSAs or, or any of the other ways that we now increasingly engage with local farmers, but we do it in a way where the chef or the eater decides how they're going to engage In other words, they decide what they want to cook with and how much of it they want to cook with, and that becomes part of their everyday diet. That kind of system, I realized through my research in the dehesa, is not a system that's truly sustainable for the future of of any uh, ecology or, or culture, and I would argue the same is true for us. So when Dan said this, it made me think about that Wendell Berry quote, Cynthia, you know the one? Eating is an agricultural act? Sure. So when I first heard that, it was a really big mind shift to think of my plate as directly connected to miles and miles of fields. But what Dan is saying is even crazier, that eating is actually an active ecosystem design. So your plate is a tool for designing an entire ecosystem. And what's interesting about that is that it's really specific to where you're from. Exactly. He's saying a cuisine should exist at the scale of an ecosystem rather than an entire country. America, unfortunately, looks at some of these great cuisines like French cuisine and says uh, one definition for French cuisine or one definition for Italian cuisine. Well, it's crazy as you look at it closely. It's, it's just just hundreds. It's regional. And Italy fits in, the, fits in the state of California. And yet look at how many micro-cuisines represent Italy. And yet we seem to think that we could have in this country one cuisine or one diet that we can begin to understand what the United States is about through, through one, one cooking style. Well, that's preposterous, of course, we need to. And there's a real opportunity. There's an opportunity in all of these micro-regions to create mini dehesas, I guess, that truly reflect the landscape and then empower it and, and make it healthier for the future. That's very exciting, actually, to talk about it in that context. It's very exciting because that, that hasn't been done. I don't know. I was just in California, and I... I pissed off a group of people in L.A. because I, I don't know, I was, I was tired, but I was, there was, someone was talking about California cuisine. And I just turned, I was like, what is California cuisine? Like, I don't know what that is. Guy, like, that's really, what is it? And she, 
and she's got really different, the whole crowd, I mean, turned to me, but I, I like, I must have pointed out someone who was popular in the group. I don't know. It's a large crowd, but it really, like, I felt like the, the wrath of California, like, coming down. Oh, there is but, nothing like the wrath of California when it comes to food. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I guess we just lost Alice Waters. No, Alice, please come back. We love you. Don't Seriously. stop listening, Alice. I'm a huge fan. But actually, I think this is one of the most exciting ideas I've heard in a while. If you're a chef, or even if you sometimes daydream about being one, this idea that we actually need to get out there and invent all these different cuisines for our various ecosystems, it's super inspiring. This is something I think about a lot. There was a recent study showing that beef uses dramatically, like crazy dramatically, more land, water, and resources than other protein like pork, chicken, or dairy. I think that study is really important. But, you know, I couldn't help thinking about this on a smaller ecosystem approach. So, like, here in New England, there are rocky hills that aren't necessarily great for farming plants but seem to be good for cattle. So maybe, I mean, I haven't run the numbers, but maybe cattle is a great use of some of the land here in New England. It just seems that sweeping statements about our cuisines might not be as useful if we're talking about what would theoretically work best in a particular niche ecosystem. But, of course, as a country, we're not there yet. Right. And also, so here's my question. I'm all super excited about this vision of inventing new cuisines that will reflect and support all the different ecosystems in the United States. But here's what I couldn't help wondering while I was reading Dan's book. Why do Spain and Italy and France have them already? And yet, it seems like we don't. What's up with that? Yeah, I, I was thinking about this, too, during our interview. I imagine those kinds of ecosystem cuisines did exist here before the Europeans came, and then natives died off from disease and war, and Europeans imposed their own crops. I guess it ties back to our last episode, actually, when we discussed Hilary Rosner's article in Wired, the one about the scientists who are trying to domesticate wild edible plants in North America. Mm-hmm. Because the Europeans just showed up and basically ignored the food that already grew here. I don't know as much about what happened here in the U.S., but I actually did a story on this in the Andes in Peru. It's a pretty remote region. So the locals held out longer and still farmed native crops. But eventually the Spanish crops won out over local ones, and Spanish foods and farming methods were imposed on the landscape. And this has led to a decline in the very systems and crops that work together so incredibly well there. You know, and and I think the same thing happened in Australia, too. In all of these cases, the colonizers just imported their own cuisine onto an alien landscape. There's another thing Dan pointed out to us. Here in the U.S., the European settlers simply had it too good. Right. The soil here in the U.S. is super fertile, and it's a big country. They could use up one area and then move on to the next. We were never forced into the kind of negotiations that the farmers of the Dehesa were forced into. And and what the story of the Dehesa, the story of really any cuisine, is that you, when when you look at it, closely is that is that these were peasants in all cases whether we're talking about about french cuisine or italian cuisine or the the thousands of of chinese southern chinese cuisines alone or tens of thousands of of india really i mean you're looking at micro negotiations with the landscape that peasants were just trying to eke out what can the landscape provide and how can we make what it provides nutritious delicious how can it last through the winter, all the other things you have to figure out in your own particular ecology. But, but those cuisines evolved out of those negotiations, and they're the truest in the se- word of the sensibility uh, term because, because we're still talking about them today and what could be more sustainable than something that lasts thousands of years. 
That actually is just like in the Andes. The locals were able to eke out what the landscape could provide in a very tough, high, steep region. And I mean high. I had some serious problems with altitude there. But they raised quinoa and potatoes and guinea pigs and alpaca. It certainly doesn't seem optimal for farming, but it helped feed the entire Incan empire. And that's also like the Dehesa. It's a really poor region of Spain, not what you'd think of as a fertile agricultural landscape. But it works. And this is what he's talking about, ecosystem cuisines. So actually, there was one example in Dan's book from American history. I was surprised by this, but it's actually southern cooking. More specifically, it's the rice-based cuisine that grew up in the pre-Civil War South. This is a cuisine that food historians call the Carolina Rice Kitchen. I became fascinated in the Carolina Rice Kitchen for a lot of reasons. But to me, here's an example of of failing soils, a time in our history where we had these, these... a soil crisis, and I didn't even know we had a soil crisis. We had a real soil crisis, and and there was a real threat to the country because how are you going to feed a, a you know a growing population in a place that has rainfall and great soils? I mean, it just fast disappeared, and and so you know most farmers dropped their plows and moved out west and plowed up the prairie. I mean, that's the we talk about manifest destiny. That's really the Kickstarter for this. Is like looking for farmland, virgin farmland that had fertility. It was a search for soil fertility. It's so funny you can reduce it to that. And of course, it's more complicated. And and, the, and our government was in, with the Homestead Act and all these other government incentives were encouraging it. But a lot of it was like it was a, a you know a run from soils that were not providing harvest. So, okay, wait a second. When Dan said this, my mind immediately went to images of the Dust Bowl. But he's not talking about the 1920s. He's talking about a century earlier. And I had never heard of any great soil crisis in the 1820s. Yeah, me either. So, I mean, you know how I am, right? I I wanted to learn more, and Jeff had this book called Dirt at Home. It's by an earth sciences professor called David Montgomery. And I flipped through it, and of course, it has an entire chapter on the soil crisis of the 1820s. Now I'm super curious, too. What uh, what was in it? What did it say? Well, okay, so first of all, this was a really big deal at the time, despite the fact that neither of us have ever heard of it. In the newspapers, in political speeches, in books, there are all these predictions about a looming agricultural apocalypse. Wow. Yeah, due to the exhausted soil. And European tourists were writing letters home using phrases like environmental devastation. They could not believe how careless American farmers were with their soil, particularly down in the south on the tobacco plantations. So I never heard about that in school. What what was different here? Why were Americans not taking care of the soil? Well, so part of it, and particularly in the south, is that the entire economy relied on tobacco as a cash crop for export. And so there was no diversity and none of the rotations that could put fertility back in the soil. And and tobacco is really hard on the land. Okay. And then the other part of it is that, of course, all those southern plantation owners had slaves. And so they had slave labor to clear new land as soon as the old soil was exhausted. And so they could just, you know, up and move on and let that worn out topsoil blow away. You know what's really crazy, though, is that David Montgomery actually traces the origins of the Civil War to the South's eroded, exhausted soil. And not slavery. Well, yeah, I mean, that's part of it, obviously. But his argument is basically that the South style of agriculture erodes the soil, right? And that's a big part of what made westward expansion necessary in the first place. And one of the main arguments between the South and the North that preceded the Civil War is whether slavery would be legal in these new Western territories. And of course, the Southern states 
wanted it to be legal because they relied on slave labor for their particular style of tobacco plantation agriculture. They needed that slave labor to clear the land whenever they exhausted it. And so they had to fight to keep slavery legal in the West. Otherwise, their entire economy would have collapsed. I admit that probably like for most of our listeners, this whole idea of the Civil War being in part about soil is totally new to me. And like you said, it's kind of crazy to think about. Okay, so we left Dan where he was describing folks moving out west to more fertile soils, but not everyone moved out west. There were still plenty of people left in the south dealing with all this poor soil, and they still had to eat. And so the people were left behind, largely plantation owners and slaves who had a tradition of negotiating the land quite well in North Africa and seeds that that could work in depleted soils. And so it was this moment of like intense experimentation. That's where the the beans come from, and like uh, in a, you know this iconic dish, Hop and John. It's like I didn't understand Hop and John. I mean, before Hop and John, it was rice, rice, rice. Carolina Rice Kitchen was literally you know breakfast, lunch, and dinner, rice all the way, and and so they you know they introduced beans into the rotations to get the nitrogen that gave you the rice. So you have a, a dish that has beans and rice, and then you have the collard greens because it, it desalinates the soil, and you have this smattering of pork because you, you can run the pigs in the lush forest and you have free pigs. Well, that's, that's a dish that puts it all together. And then you extrapolate that into a cuisine. You start to see that's a very nice negotiation, actually, because it's delicious. None of this works unless it's delicious. But it really supports uh, bringing back soil fertility, which is what happened. And I, I think it's a stunning example of what's possible. That's a dehesa, too, in, in, a, in a different climate. <laughs> Now, you might be thinking that's a historical example. It's not happening today. Right. The South today is less Carolina rice kitchen and more barbecue and waffle houses and cooking ham and Coca-Cola. People cook ham and Coca-Cola? Oh, they do. And it is delicious. Mm. But even so, it's hardly a dehesa-like cuisine. But all is not lost. There are people applying this dehesa-like thinking to cuisine and the landscape in America today. In the book, Dan describes how Glenn Roberts, he's founder of Anson Mills, which is the company behind the grits at many a trendy brunch spot. So Glenn Roberts has worked to revive the Carolina rice kitchen, not just the cuisine, but the entire ecosystem that supported it. And Dan also told us about an example closer to home. This was an experience he had like that first trip to the Dehesa, that was really one of the inspirations for the entire book. It involves a guy called Klaus Martins. He's a grain farmer in upstate New York. And the way I sort of got into this book was I was excited to support his farm because I, I, I loved his farming philosophy as I heard of it, but I was really interested in wheat for the restaurant. I wanted, I wanted local flour on my menu. And so I, I started buying his local flour, local wheat, and I started making these beautiful breads out of this emmer wheat that he was growing and it was fantastic and you know diners loved it and you know people wanted to sell their firstborn for a, for a second slice this stuff it was really really delicious and so I, I that's why I was like okay I'm gonna write this book where I look at ingredients like like his wheat and others and and go back and figure out a recipe for how how is it grown and how or how was something raised and talk about that recipe and when I got to his the first day of standing in the middle of his 2,000 acres I realized that well, I didn't see any wheat. I saw a lot of other crops, millets and buckwheats and barleys and, and oats and, and, and then cover crops and crops like leguminous crops, beans and whatnot. And I realized that I was thinking about this in the wrong way because here I was raising the farm table flag and supporting his wheat, but not supporting any of the other suite of crops that were going to support 
soil fertility. And in supporting the soil fertility, I was really, he was really trying to get the fertility correct to grow the wheat. So how could I, how could I uh, support the wheat without, grow, without supporting all the other things that he was growing to get me the wheat that I coveted? That was a big moment for me, and, and, and it helped me understand that, that Ehesa almost imme- you know, somewhat immediately I mean, took, took several visits uh, and, and to understand what everything was being grown. In the end, the, the lesson was sort of the same, which is like you cannot decide, which has become the, sort of this American right for, for our diets or for what we have for dinner. Uh, we decide what we want, and then we demand that the land produce it where in fact it should really work the other way around. So, so I was treating Klaus's farm, his ecosystem in the wrong way, although he wasn't complaining to me, he was bringing me to see it. And when I saw it, I realized, God, for a guy who's, who's this champion of, of these kind of local farmers and for someone who has a restaurant in the middle of a farm and for someone who owns a family farm, I own a dairy farm, the nuts and bolts of farming, in this case, escaped me, and he wasn't selling any of the crops I was looking at, any of those lowly grain crops that were soil-supporting and any of the leguminous crops that were great for the fertility, any of the cover crops. He was essentially turning them either into the soil or making them into bag feed, and he was losing money. He loses money on all of these crops. So I decided then I needed to change my approach, my cooking, and, and figure out a way to cook with the, this whole farm and, and still enjoy the wheat, but support the crops that support the wheat. And that's very much what the whole dehesa is all about. But Cynthia, here's the thing. Okay. All the historical examples we've been talking about, where a cuisine evolves to support an ecosystem, like the Spanish dehesa or the Carolina rice kitchen, they all have one important thing in common. They all evolved in situations where there were massive constraints. It's not even just the bad soil. It's that you couldn't give up on your bad soil and buy food from somewhere else instead because you were poor and the place you lived was too remote. But those constraints really don't exist in the U.S. anymore. Farmers can add fertilizer to poor soil. And in New York, it's cheaper to buy veggies from California than from upstate. And then we move around a lot more than those historical people did, too. So we don't have that lifelong relationship between the landscape we live in and the food we grew up eating. So, say, even if I had grown up eating some sort of local Maryland cuisine, now I live in Boston. So how can we really have an ecosystem cuisine today here in the U.S.? I mean, I want to get excited about this opportunity to go out and create millions of micro-local cuisines in these delicate negotiations with the American landscape that Dan describes so beautifully. But we have the interstate system, and we have container ships, and we have Walmart. I know, I know, I know. Take a deep breath. It's true, those historical forces that created the ecosystem cuisines in the past are mostly gone, right? It's definitely a challenge, especially for people as skeptical as we are. I've had those same thoughts. I mean, I go to the farmer's market. How do I know which crops farmers are planting to help their soils be richer and healthier? But Dan did have two ideas for how to make it work. One has to do with the trend-setting power of chefs, which we'll come back to. And the other has to do with deliciousness and the science behind it. Aha, here comes the science part. Exactly. Not that there's not science in the whole idea of crop rotations and ecosystems, but for Dan, one of the things that just might make this whole ecosystem cuisine idea catch on is that it is actually more delicious and nutritious. 
This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card. You know that feeling when you try a new food for the first time and your mouth experiences these brand new flavors and sensations? It's like, wow, I didn't even know a food could do that. This happened to me when I went on this amazing trip to the northern tip of Queensland in Australia. We were so far north that we were off the country's electrical grid. And we were staying on a banana farm where they grew dozens and dozens of different kinds of bananas. In the morning, I woke up to a basket full of some of the most bananas bananas you can imagine. Red ones that were super soft and sweet like raspberries, and small finger-sized ones that were sort of floral, and even blue ones that tasted exactly like vanilla ice cream. Life's too short to pass up extraordinary experiences. And if you're ready to take your next big food adventure, go there with Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. To get a delicious carrot on your plate is to, is to support the right kind of soil. You can't have a great tasting carrot and bad ecological functioning, ultimately, and bad soil. And generally, if that carrot is truly delicious, it's nutritious. I mean, it has, it has flavonoids. It has nutrient density. Otherwise, that's what you're tasting. And so through great flavor, and I'm not talking about ice cream, of course. I'm talking about true, truly great flavor, the depth of flavor that chefs are always pursuing. I mean, hell, what are, what are we without that, you know? What are we? Not a lot. I want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier, because I'd really like to get into a little bit of the science of this and the science of what makes something taste good. Can you talk a little bit about that complexity? And I remember in the book as well, you mentioned the idea of persistence yeah. and how that of flavor and how that also relates to things. It's funny, it's funny though, because that, that's one of my favorite quotes, I think, from the book. It was a conversation with this great winemaker named Randall Graham from California. I remember that conversation. I thought he hit it right because he he talked about the definition of great flavor, which is, you know, it's hard to define. What the hell is, what are we tasting when we taste great flavor? Is it different for different people? And one way to, to baseline it is to say the persistence of it, which is to say, how long do you taste it for? When you breathe out five minutes later, as one might have in a, the experience of in a fi- tasting a fine wine, 
uh, not to be too too haughty about the example, but uh, you know, a fine wine is a good example of like, well, hey, if you can taste you know great red wine, you can the persistence of that is is several hours in some cases. And he, and Randall Graham's point is that it really is coming from fertility in the soil, and and he points to mycorrhizal associations, which are associations that happen on the root level. I should jump in here because I did my big story for the UC Berkeley Food and Farming Fellowship, the one that Michael Pollan organized. The one where, in what will come to be seen as a pivotal moment in podcasting history, we met. That exact one. So I did my story on cutting-edge research on mycorrhizal fungi. That's what he's referring to when he says mycorrhizal associations. There are these microscopic creatures that live on and in plant roots. They're one of many millions of creatures that live on or around plants. You'll hear lots more about them next month. And they help plants access nutrients in the soil. It seemed very clear to me that the healthier the soil community around a root of a plant the more chance you had to experience this persistence. And, and I, I look, ex- from my own experience, I'm 100% sure that's right. You talk to the best soil scientists in the world, and, uh, you know, you get some scientists are very careful with this because, as, as one scientist said to me, you know, I talked to him throughout this book and sort of towards the end, he said, you know, you're sounding more and more mystified, and that's telling me you're getting closer and closer to the truth, which is we don't know what makes great flavor out of great soil. We really cannot pinpoint it, and there's a lot of disagreement around the mechanics of it. But for sure, everyone agrees that the life of the soil, uh, whatever's happening in our subterranean inability, or one, one, one uh, soil scientist said we're subterranean impaired, and I think that's right. In our impairment, one thing we do know is that a vibrant community ha- gives you the opportunity, at least, for great flavor. There's a lot of other variables, uh, including above soil, but, but for sure, if you, you're, you're pursuing great flavor, you need to pursue a vibrant community below soil, and so that's what I discovered, and all of these farmers were farmers that were farming soil, uh, and they were essentially trying to get the best and most fertility into their soil and allowing nature to do its work from there. This is an interesting question, this idea of soil fertility and the nutrient density of plants and how they taste, and then how that affects our health. Like Dan says, it really is right at the edge of what the science we have right now can even show. There is research showing that the food we eat has fewer nutrients than it did even a few decades ago. There's this one study done by a biochemistry professor at UT Austin. He compared nutritional data for 43 different fruits and vegetables. He started in 1950 and then compared the figures to the same crops nearly 50 years later in 1999. And they found significant declines in a number of nutrients. There was 38% less vitamin B2 on average, less vitamin C, less calcium, less iron. And it's all stuff we need. And that's partly because plants have been bred to grow faster and bigger. And to withstand long storage and refrigeration. And also, we know that the soils have been depleted of nutrients. I read a horrifying statistic that agricultural soils in the United States have been depleted of 85% of their minerals. And we know anecdotally that our vegetables tend to have less flavor than they did in the past. But here's the thing. I haven't actually been able to find specific research about whether plants that have more intense flavors are likely more dense in nutrients. I emailed an agronomist at the University of Massachusetts. He's been studying nutrient differences in variety of plants raised in a variety of conditions. He didn't know of any studies that tested nutrient density against flavor. Any of our listeners know any? But I'm going to go out on a limb and say it could make scientific sense. Otherwise, plants are mostly water, right? Right. I mean, where else is flavor coming from? 
I did find a citizen science project that is working with labs and university extension departments to test the connection between soil nutrients, vegetable nutrients, and also bricks, which measures sweetness, but they haven't published any results yet. But are we missing something? And if not, why doesn't this research exist? Scientists, we want to hear from you. Let us know. Either way, it's a problem that we've kind of dumbed down our taste here in the U.S. I ate an omelet recently. It had tomatoes, mushrooms, and cheese, and almost no flavor. But it could have had so much flavor. That is so depressing. Such a waste of a meal. There are only so many meals we get to eat over our lifetimes. Oh, yeah. This is hardly surprising, but Dan also finds this decline of flavor in America a bit of a bummer. Here he is describing the ways he thinks our current system of farming has harmed taste. Well, the dumbing down of, of complexity. I mean, bitter flavors are not in the industrial food system <laughs> for good reason. They don't sell, I guess. I don't know. That's a sort of easy one. But yeah, this idea that we have, you know, lost several generations, I guess, for truly great flavor, for, for recognizing and wanting to pursue great flavor is... is you know, was a little depressing, I guess. Okay, so we need to add relearning how to appreciate these great, intense, complicated flavors onto our to-do list as well, alongside inventing all these new ecosystem cuisines. No problem, that's all. Aim low, Dan, why don't you? But as you already pointed out, Cynthia, there's more to flavor than just supporting the soil. Absolutely. It's also directly connected to plant breeding and genetics. And that is the third part of our conversation with Dan. Here's his story about a breeder he met from Cornell. I asked this breeder, this, if we came into the, I, served, I cooked him a meal. And when he came in, I was just sort of joking around with him. And I showed him the, the workaday squash, the butternut squash, the fine squash. But I said, can you, you know, do something here, shrink the thing and make it like super delicious. And five years later... A lot of conversations in between, but that's what this gentleman, Mike Mazurik, was a great, he's a cucubits breeder, uh, and he's a fantastic squash breeder. But he breeds uh, cucumbers and melons and all sorts of things. But but the squash he ended up developing is um, yet unnamed. We call it 898 squash. We served it here this this fall and winter, and it, it's fantastic. But it's been selected over the years for flavor. But it's also been selected for, for pest resistance for the farmer. So what you have here is yet another example of the car correspondence and the connection between great flavor and a good agriculture system because here the farmer can apply less pesticides to the plant and get a very good harvest. So we're not talking about looking back at you know some kind of idealistic idea of agriculture that works for a shaker village and makes the farmer no money and is completely elitist. We're actually talking about very good yields that is super delicious. I say super because squash is a super food. This squash blows your mind uh, on that definition. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just in a whole other universe. I, I was so uh, shocked at 898 squash, I roasted it and served it without salt, without pepper, without butter. I wanted people just to taste this. It's like, it, it, you, you just sit, stand there in silence. You guys can't believe it. But that was, that was just one. <laughs> guy doing this part-time. He wasn't even doing this. You know, he was doing, he's involved in a million other things. He was doing this kind of a hobby. You know what I love about that particular example? It is not an heirloom vegetable. Don't get me wrong. I am the first in line for some heirloom tomatoes in the summer. But we really don't need to be stuck in the past when it comes to flavor. Heirloom veggies do often taste great because they were actually bred for flavor. But plant breeders are still coming up with new varieties today. They can help breed food that tastes better and it fits a landscape and combats pests. 
And here is where Dan actually comes back to the idea of chefs as trendsetters and the role that chefs can have in creating an ecosystem cuisine, part of which is asking plant breeders to breed for flavor, not just yield. But you know, I do agree with the idea that chefs can influence culinary trends, but, and I hate to be the voice of doom yet again. That's okay, voice of doom away. It is my natural tendency. I'm not sure that chefs really can transform the entire way we eat as a culture. I agree. And and that's actually what we told Dan, that we were a little cynical that chefs could make such a difference. You know, I'm, I'm a bottom-up guy with, like, everything. You know, it's come from the people and come up. But I think what we're talking about, not to sound Reagan Republican, but I think it is top-down in the sense that, well, that it trickles down to the rest of the <laughs> culture. Sure because, yeah, yeah. It, but in this sense, I really think it might work because these ideas need to bleed into the culture. What, what we're, what, to me, what we're talking about, or at least what I believe the third plate represents, is, is this pattern of eating is, is a cuisine that represents a small land area and, and a food system or, or an ecological function for which you are, are supporting through your diet. That's going to require more than the home cook to shoulder. Not that they can't be a part of it, of course, they can and they should. But I think chefs have this unique opportunity to curate the how you put this together so that, so that we stop celebrating or fetishizing heirloom or celebrating or fetishizing the one or two, three, four crops that we, we celebrate through the, the support of the farmer's market instead of looking at the connections and, and the pattern of eating. So you're right. The vision that's, that we need for the future is very large, and a vision for the future of eating is, is, requires a, a large vision and, and a complicated one, a daunting one. But I think part of the process here is going to be a cultural shift. And chefs have a unique position to play here because we put the pieces together. That's not to say that there isn't a role for government, a role for activists, a role for writers and, and, and people who are, who are broadcasting the message even further. But if we can look at restaurants and chefs as places where these things can come together in repeatable ways, uh, we're talking about a landscape that can be supported. You know, look, their chefs are doing this. I mean, I'm not leading this. You know, I, I am in many ways reflecting what is already happening out there. You look at the great chefs of the world right now, Rene Redzepi and at, at Noma in Copenhagen. I mean, what did he do? He he looked at at what is what is Viking cuisine. That's what his what is Viking cuisine. You know, it's it's herring, right? But he tethered that and then built an entire menu that celebrates. Copenhagen and Denmark. I mean, that, you know, Scandinavian, that's, that's brilliant and true, really true, which is the other thing. I mean, it's exaggerated, but it's in a modern context, and he's transforming a landscape. Not only is he transforming a landscape through his little restaurant, but the disciples that have worked for him, they're all opening restaurants, and farmland is being farmed in a different way, in a different system. Well, that's based on one person who had a vision to do that. The same thing's happening with Massimo Bottura in Italy. The same thing's happening in some ways with Alex Atala in Sao Paulo. Sean Brock in the South is doing it, right? I mean, so there are not just pockets of this happening. They're happening all over the world. And that's the ticket, I think, to the future of food, that we needn't look at a gourmet chef or or a high-end chef, a white tablecloth restaurant chef, whatever you want to call us, 
as, as elitist and removed from these kind of ideas, but actually critical to making the transition between, uh, between a farm-to-table movement and what we need for the future, which is something that, that is more connected and, and truly resilient. And, and that's going to take a cultural shift. But I don't know that it's in our lifetime. I'm okay with that. I mean, uh, what is it? Wes Jackson says, if you're thinking about a, an idea that you can solve in your lifetime, you're not thinking big enough. I really do love that idea. So this is an interesting transformation for his idea of the role of a chef or what constitutes a success for him. In the past, a chef would have been proud of a signature dish like molten chocolate cake. Today, for Dan Barber, he has a different idea of what he wants to leave behind. What can be his claim to fame as a chef? But you're growing wheat here yeah, yeah. now. Yeah, Jack Algier. Jack Algier is the, the farmer here at Stone Barns, and he is growing uh, wheat and triticale and barley and experimenting on about an acre uh, here for grains. Oh, barber wheat, are uh, we? <laughs> yeah, so barber wheat was this experiment with Steve Jones where, where he bred a, a new variety that I'm super excited about. He's been, been selecting for flavor. And uh, barber wheat, I think, is going to go on the ground this fall and over winter, and then we'll have it next spring. That's amazing. It sounds, yeah. I'm looking forward to trying it sometime. Yeah. I think for a chef to have a, a, wheat, a variety of wheat named after you, that, that must be a pretty good I don't need anything more. <laughs> as, long as, as long as it tastes good. Oh, I think we're both with him on that one. <laughs> we definitely are. But Nikki, we have been talking and talking, and I feel like we've barely scratched the surface. I hear you. But, you know, when you and I first sat down to talk about this book before we interviewed Dan, I think we talked for like two hours straight. Absolutely. And the interview went on longer than this, too. This is just the edited highlights. And I mean edited. This podcast was originally about twice as long. You can thank us now. Yes. But it does just go to show you how much Dan gave us to think about. And his book has even more stories about landscapes and cuisines, and it takes you to New York and to the South and to Spain, and has all these amazing stories about plant breeding and tuna ranching and bricks levels and more. And we are pretty sure you are going to want to read it for yourself, if you haven't already. So we got Dan to sign a special copy for us to give to one of our lovely listeners. Email us at contact at gastropod.com with the subject line, The Third Plate. Or Dan Barber, or Tuna Ranching, or whatever. We'll figure it out, and we'll choose one of you. Or just go on gastropod.com and find the link there. Now, I jumped in earlier in the episode when Dan brought up microbes in the soil. Because you're obsessed with microbes. I am. It's true. Microbes are cool. Anyway, this month you've heard science and culture and history all entwined on the plate. But next month we are going to dive into some really cutting-edge approaches to microbes and soil science out in the field. I will take all of you with me out onto the hot, humid, bright green tropical savanna in Colombia. Wait. Really? You'll take me with you? I've never been to Colombia. Over the airwaves. Fine. I don't mind staying at home while you explore South America, really. Thanks. Here, have a listen. Oh, I'm glad we got me boots. And that's it for this episode. Thanks to Dan Barber, an amazing chef and thinker and author of The Third Plate. Really, couldn't he leave something for us to be good at? Seriously. Well, you know, he's not hosting a podcast. At least not yet. Thanks also to Irene Hamburger, the vice president of Blue Hill, who helped us connect with Dan, and to my friend Jake Barton, who created this super cool virtual grange, which is an online community for beginning farmers managed by Stone Barns. He was the one who originally introduced us to Dan. And of course, thanks to your lovely husband, Jeff, of building blog fame, who drove us up to Stone Barns and then spent the afternoon recording turkeys for us. As always, you can find us online at gastropod.com. 
Follow us on Twitter at Gastropodcast and email us at contact at gastropod.com. We'd love to hear from you. And while you're there, sign up for our email list so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcasting app. And here are two more things you can do. If you like us, let them know on iTunes by rating the Gastropod podcast. Give us some multi-star love. That'll help get the podcast in front of new listeners. And finally, we're new in this podcasting world, and we're still trying to reach listeners. If you each tell just one person about us, convince just one person to check us out and maybe become a regular listener, then we will double our audience. And now we're doing math as well as science and history. It is a full curriculum on this show. Thanks for listening. Till next time. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. You, dear listener, already know about the transformative power of food. You're probably thinking about food right now, aren't you? Look, we get it. Sometimes a craving is more than a craving. It's a calling that you have to indulge, even if it takes you thousands of miles to get there. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card, made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more.